Welcome to the Stepping In a Podcast. I'm Renee Schulte. And I'm Jason Haglund. We're here to dive deep into the complex, often overwhelming world of behavioral health systems, structures, and the never-ending barriers. That's right, Jason. We know firsthand the challenges individuals and families face when trying to access and navigate the behavioral health system. We want to save you from stepping in the crap we've encountered with many of our clients. Together, we'll be shedding light on the issues and opportunities within the behavioral health system. By sharing stories, discussing policy implications, we will offer up valuable insights and practical solutions for improving the system at every level. So grab a cup of coffee or something stronger, or in Jason's case, a venti peppermint mocha. Sit back and get ready to step in the world of behavioral health with the Stepping In It podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stepping In It podcast. So great that you're here today. Wow, it's been summer in Iowa. And what is that? That is fair season. Have you gone to any fairs this year, Jason? I have. I love fair season. Have you been to the fair? I have. I'm a big, big state fair girl. So I have to have my annual corn dog pretty much and my lemonade. I love both of those things pretty much once a year. And then I'm a happy girl. Absolutely. I I had my state fair Twinkie or my Iowa Twinkie. So oh my. I'm feeling the fair. That's impressive. You can eat that. My stomach does not agree <laughs> if I were to try something like that. I always want to know, like, do people actually survive that deep fried butter on a stick thing? Do people eat that and actually their stomachs can manage it? Because my body just is like, I don't think so. Yeah, I think I'd be pretty oozy if I did that. So that's what I haven't bitten off yet. <laughs> no, I think I had somebody tell us that it's it was supposed to like taste like a cinnamon roll kind of because they put the batter on it and cinnamon and sugar and whatever. So maybe it's like a glorified funnel cake, but like with a whole lot more butter. I don't know. But I'm like, I'm a little scared. Then this year at the state fair, their big thing, I think one of their top ones is something to do with mac and cheese and brisket. That is like a grilled cheese sandwich that's like deep fat fried. And my brain cannot compute. I just, I don't know why we put everything on a stick. Yeah, I got out without trying that one this year. You know, maybe a future podcast could be us going on the road to the state fair and we could try all of these foods. You know, I've threatened this before, Renee. I know you have. And I just have to be careful because I we might be very sick by the end of the recording. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about why are we doing stepping in it and why now? Why? I mean, there's there's some really good reasons for that. And so today we're going to be sharing like, how did we get here? And like, why today? Why is the podcast starting now? And what's so important going on in the world that makes implementing behavioral health an important thing? So let's talk about where we've been the last three years, Jason. What, what have we been doing for the last three years with Project Recovery Iowa? Yeah, you know, we, we had a great opportunity. And, you know, Renee and I were both part of Project Recovery Iowa, which started out as COVID Recovery Iowa. It was the FEMA response to the emotional impact of the pandemic. And, you know, Renee and I both have backgrounds doing crisis response work after disasters. And, you know, the pandemic is one of the largest shared disasters that we've experienced across the country. Um, so, you know, I had the privilege of working as an egg in rural um, workforce um, and, and outreach person. I was kind of the the farmer on our egg team um, to kind of help to figure out how are we going to outreach to these rural communities. And, you know, oddly, what that included for a couple of those summers, Renee, was going to a lot of really small county fairs. Um, I got to go to, I think, 14 county fairs wow. over one of those summers and just talk to people and kind of test where where are people at with everything? How are people feeling 
you know, for a big portion of that, people's lives are really disrupted. Um, and so to be able to be one-on-one with people and kind of talk about how they were experiencing that disruption, how it was impacting their own personal life was really fascinating. And, and to just be able to get out there and, you know, I got to hear a lot of different things, um, a lot of different perceptions, but it impacted everybody, right? Everyone had an idea. Everyone had some feelings to share around the issue. And I think that was such a great opportunity. And I know you, you did some similar things, Renee. Talk about what you did with Project Recovery Iowa. Yeah. So we started, they asked me to come on in the to work with the urban workforce. And one of the interesting things about that project is we were virtual for the very first time. And that's for the most part, really different. And so for the first year, we didn't really get to do anything. So that first year was not the county fair year. I can tell you that we were on Zoom a whole lot that first year and everybody's impacted. So if you think about the urban workforce during the pandemic, you had some that were considered essential workers, right? That had to continue working regardless of how they felt, regardless of the amount of illness, regardless of all that. And you think of who those people were, right? You've got your healthcare workers on the front line. You've got even like people that worked at the convenience stores, uh, folks that worked in your grocery stores, you know, they just couldn't not work because of COVID. And so there was all this extra precautions, which added a ton of stress and just a ton of challenges for those folks. And then there was this other group that they sent home for work, if you remember that. So my husband was one of those that worked in an office generally. Um, They worked in manufacturing. He wasn't in the manufacturing line. He was part of the uh, management. And so they didn't want anybody in the building that could potentially contaminate the manufacturing line and bring you know, their business to a halt. So all those quote extra folks got sent home. So then there's this whole group of people trying to figure out how in the world to work from home. And I know, Jason, you've been figuring this out too, but working from home is very different than working in an office setting. And so, I mean, I'm sure that was a transition for you when you first came back into consulting and moving back into the house. I'm sure you and your whole family had a little bit of a transition with that. Well, it was okay when they were all going to school and work, Renee. The real transition occurred when I wasn't home alone anymore to work and everyone else was around. You know, you also raised a really interesting point of the disruptions, but a lot of folks in rural especially in the farm and agriculture, you know, and and those who raise livestock, all those things still happened throughout the pandemic. Um, grain still had to go to the elevator. Cattle still had to be fed and, and sent to the slaughterhouses. So, so many times in rural areas, the impact was very different. It was really about, you know, how, how do they manage within the system of going elsewhere? Because the day-to-day activities are largely exactly the same. Um, throughout all of it. And so that really created some extra stress as well. Right. And you think about like the meatpacking plants, right? There's just bunches and bunches of stories about the numbers of people that got f- sick and they had to continue working to to your point, right? Food production doesn't stop just because there's a there's an epidemic or a crisis. And so, you know, there were still people who had to be on that front line. So it really did impact very differently. And it was across, you know, different age groups and different things. So Let's talk about that. We've been really tracking that data now for the last two or three years, thinking about, okay, who was impacted more so during the pandemic? And to your point, some people were impacted differently. Some folks were able to be sent home and maybe protected more from the virus, and then others were not and had to continue. So I know we have a lot of data on that, Jason. What have we been looking at and how have we been impacted since this pandemic started three years ago? 
Yeah, I mean, and we were just in this interesting position where we're out on the front lines talking with folks, but then thinking about, well, what what does the data tell us, right? And so I started tracking with the National Center for Health Statistics, and this is where I nerd out, Renee. Mm -hmm. um, I started looking at those levels of anxiety and depression, and they were being reported out every two weeks, um, every month throughout the course of the pandemic. And if we go back to 2019, we can see across the country, 11% of the population were experiencing symptoms of anxiety and depression. And one of the things that really stuck out was as we started to look at the data, starting in um, you know, April, May of 2020, that number spiked to 30%. And every two weeks or every month now, all the way through to July of, of this year, right? We look at that data for the last three years consistently, it's yet to really drop below 30%. We've not returned back to those 2019 anxiety and depression numbers. Um, they're, they're actually still extremely high um, here in Iowa and the national averages. We, we trend kind of similarly, but I look across the Midwest and some states are higher than that. And so when we say this is done, it's over, it's really not. We're still experiencing those higher elevated levels of prolonged anxiety and depression. And we don't know the impact of that, right? We don't know what happens if we're under prolonged anxiety and stress, you know, in those higher levels of depression, what does that do for us, you know, and, and how does that contribute to our well-being and how we function? It's just been really interesting to see that. Right. We're really part of a large experiment right now, because if you think about it, chronic stress typically is around 90 days. And they're looking at, you know, if you think about like a tornado, a hurricane, a tsunami, uh, generally there's a there's 90 days where people can like go into this chronic stress mode as a person and kind of have the adrenaline and all the things that you need. But after about three months, you know, you come back down to more of a normal you know, heart rate, uh, normal stress level, all of that. And that's just really not happening through this last three years. And if we think about it, it, as you know, it's not just the pandemic. I mean, think of all the things that's happened in those three years, right? We talk about this when we go out and speak, but, you know, we had two ratios through the middle of our state that wiped out certain pieces more than others. We've had all of these challenges with supply chain. I mean, how many remember even during COVID, right? The whole toilet paper disaster. But even since then, right, there's things we just can't get access to like you used to. Prices have gone up. We've had all kinds of inflation. You've had all these challenges with gas prices. And so it's made everything more expensive. And we all know that financial stress just adds to our stress. So when you're thinking about the data that went from 11% up to 30%, there's a couple of things, right? We could have more people being willing to talk about it and report it more. And so that could be an impact of stigma or less of stigma, right? That people are now starting to actually identify that there's challenges and really being willing to talk about it, which is awesome. But on the other side, we also know just by watching people and how they interact, right? That they actually are more stressed out. And so when you have that higher level of that generalized anxiety stress at that bottom, the other thing happens is like, it's like one small thing now breaks the camel's back and it's a whole lot sooner, right? The, the tipping point for a crisis is tiny. And so we used to have a, a little more capacity to build up stress. Now we're just like right at the top, ready to blow. And you can see it everywhere. But on top of all of this data, we also saw some other data, right? Jensen, you found that one on the Surgeon General about isolation. Talk to us about that. Yeah, and that's actually a recent report that came out really kind of recapping and, and, and honing in on how has this isolation affected us? Because we know there's some populations who have been increasingly isolating themselves over the last three years. 
you know, in rural areas, we, we kind of have a buffer because we're a little more isolated to start with. Um, but we've kind of seen this epidemic of isolation. And that's kind of led to a, a lack of social connection. And so, you know, it's really a great read if, if you go to the office of U.S. Surgeon General and pick up that report. But kind of what struck me, Renee, um, that I was surprised by is isolation and not having social connections has huge health impacts. So it's not just about your emotional well-being. It's about your physical health. And it's similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having six drinks or being physically inactive, right? So the, the physical toll on your body from those lack of social connections. And, you know, it reminds me of those loose connections, right? And so I, I'm always think about what creates community. And it's those connections. It's saying hi to somebody in the grocery store. It's kind of those people that they're not your best friends, but they're people you know, right? The people that surround you. I always think about my barista at Starbucks. Um, you know, before all of this, I would be out and about a lot more. And I would go into the same Starbucks every day. I know this is hard to believe for Renee. Um, and she would look up at me and she'd already have my name on the cup. And she'd already have written on there a venti peppermint mocha, Jason, when I got up to line. Uh, because my rule is I have to go in, right? Because it would be unhealthy to go through the drive-thru every time. So I have to park, walk in. Mm -hmm. I need the steps if I'm going to justify a venti peppermint mocha. And you know, that was a loose connection. Was I good friends with her? No, but we would always greet each other, right? That's a loose connection. Those relationships are really important for you and for your community. And what we lost over the last three years was a lot of those connections. Our, you know, our groceries sometimes are delivered to us. We don't talk to the clerk in the local grocery store anymore. Um, our habits started to change. And all of those things then you know, we're now seeing the data from that. And so we think about that anxiety and depression. We think about the impact on our physical health from isolation. Those things are all, we're starting to understand, maybe not very good for us. Yeah. And if you start looking at like how this has really impacted us, I, I know, especially in the older generation, some of the, the folks that are my parents' age, um, they've never gone back to the regular sort of social routines they had pre-pandemic. And some of them have now become more isolated. You think about like how the world changed through that, right? We have a lot more now connectivity through telemedicine, through um, online options for lots of things, right? So for some folks, you know, maybe their connection was going to their place of worship of whatever kind. Well, a lot of that now has become available online. And there's still a lot of folks that have just not gone back. And whether you worship or not, that isn't the point. The point is those connections. And so then you become even more isolated. And so what used to be a potential support group for some of these folks that are more rural and are more disconnected, if they don't go anymore because they still fear for their health or they're not willing to get COVID or whatever, we've seen as far as impacts go, people are aging much more drastically after this last three years because they haven't been out. They haven't been getting those social connections. They haven't even been, you know, outside. And so we, we know this summer, uh, we've had challenges with like the forest fires right up in Canada and messing up our air quality that impacts people to be able to be out, to be able to be healthy, to be able to get what we would consider fresh air normally wasn't so fresh there for a while. And so that impacts people. And so you start thinking about how does that impact? So that idea of the social isolation, uh, it's a real problem. And as people age, it gets more and more so. And so if people aren't thinking about how do they connect and where do they connect, it's going to be way easier to just isolate and draw within. And that is going to become a massive problem. And if you look at that Surgeon General's report, they're concerned about that as a 
as a general cause of all kinds of health, chronic health concerns moving forward, and that we're not really talking about that yet. And so that's a really important thing to think about. So we've seen all the data. We've kind of talked about that. Where do we go from here, Renee? So as I look forward, um, you know, we know the impact that's occurred to us. Where are we going to go post-pandemic? How do we start to look at rural communities, especially, um, and how do they rebuild? Right. That's a really great question. And in, in rural communities, part of it is trying to do the things you used to do before. So if we're talking about the folks that never got to stop work, right, and they still did all those things, they're still going potentially to their their you know seed stores to get their seed and to talk to people and to go you know all the places that you'd go and they need to continue to do that and to be continuing to make those connections and getting back out there because it it isn't going to be good for anyone to continue to be isolated so thinking about how do we do that is thinking about okay where where do you still feel safe to go? And what does that look like? And a lot of times outside is a really great option. So that's what was so fun about county fairs when we finally got to that connection point where we could not have to be virtual for the entire pan, you know, for the that entire contract. And we could actually start going outside to talk to people, right? That was such a big deal because people were starting to get back out. And so it really is important to start thinking about reconnecting. And so the other thing I think that's really important is, you know, I don't know what people in the world are thinking about getting, quote, back to normal. I don't know what normal was. We always joke about this, right? It's, it's a setting like on a dryer or a dishwasher, but normal isn't really a thing. And and you can tell by the data that things didn't go back to the way they were. Now, whether was that normal before or is it normal now? It doesn't matter, but things have changed. And so I think part of it, too, is we have to think about what does that look like? So when you're thinking about that, Jason, what are some of those things? You, I know you talk about some things that were good that came out of, of being virtual and online that you wanted to continue post-pandemic. What are some of those things we talked about? Yeah, absolutely, Ray. You know, as you're talking, you know, I, I think about physically we may get back to normal, but emotionally, you know, do we feel safe in some of those places? And I reflect upon what a lot of people talk to me about is it's it's how do you create emotional safety um even if we're physically going through some of those motions you know i know for one thing that my kiwanis club started doing virtual meetings and still today they're still doing and connecting folks who still don't who who want to connect um you know and come to that meeting every friday at noon who just physically can't get there. And so it's created connection points. Um, we have people from all over the country who are able to attend meetings. So, you know, there's been some really positive uses of technology. I can tell you, um, I, I was, I've been a board member on my local Kiwanis club. And in 2018, if I would have brought up, hey, why don't we connect by Zoom um, and have the ability for our members to come electronically, they would have kicked me out of the room. Um, there would have been absolutely nobody who thought that I could get a, a majority of those members um, to connect virtually. And here we are, right? We changed our skill sets. We learned technology in a different way and challenged us to do things that we would have never done before. So those are positive things, right? But we have to work through emotional safety too. And so, you know, a lot of times when I think about the pandemic and how do we get back to whatever that normal is, you know, other than the setting of my dishwasher and washing machine, I think about, you know, how, how do we start to have more conversations and, and connect in a different way? 
Yeah, one of the great things I think that came through that pandemic is is telemedicine, telehealth, and in the in the mental health world, that is huge. And we actually got a lot of laws passed and policies changed to actually continue that beyond you know that time because people could see the value. Now we still have struggles, and we know that everybody listening won't have all the broadband access that you need for the video component of that. And there's still more work to be done about whether or not they're going to accept just like the phone for telehealth, uh, like on a phone only without a video. And that's all being worked on at the congressional level. So I know that's still in play. But for a lot of people, it really brought a lot of access. And I remember stories from our time on the contract where you would hear stories about a farmer who was able to dial in from their tractor, from their farm, and be able to get their refill of whatever it was they needed instead of having to get out of work and to get to the place to be able to get the appointment, to be able to get the refill, and all of those things. And so it really is a good tool. Now, does it replace face-to-face doctor's appointments? I don't think so. And we're not saying that it does, but it's definitely a a great opportunity for access. And that is a huge win that came through the pandemic that is continuing. And people have thought that that's a worthy cause to continue to pay for. So I know that's something for myself that um, I'm real excited about that we were able to work on the policies to be able to support that for people that are providers to be able to get paid equitably to be able to provide those services for our people. And and in rural areas, telemedicine is is just, it's life-changing. Absolutely, Renee. You know, and I, I think about finding that balance. And so I think that's part of, you know, what what we do in the conversations we have um, across the Midwest when we talk to people is helping to understand what that balance is. And when I think about balance, Renee, tell me about how you find balance personally. I know that's something that you really love to talk about as well. Yeah, I call myself a recovering politician. Um, for those that don't know my story, my time when I was in office was it was the most fun I ever had, but it was the most unhealthy I ever was too. And if you think about the life, and I don't know if you know about the life of a legislator, but let me just tell you, there's free breakfast, lunch, and dinner of all the foods you should never eat. And then you don't get enough sleep and you really don't get enough exercise. So you put all that together in a group of people who work 24-7. And in Iowa, it was from January through April or May, if we were lucky. And on the years we were fighting, went through June. And it just took a toll on my physical health. And so because of that, now I work really hard to maintain a balance in life of work and just healthcare so that I can be here because I might not have been here if I had continued down those paths. And so for me, thinking right now, my biggest thing that I love to do is to swim. And swimming isn't for everybody, but for me, I have found that that's something that I can do that I can't really think too much about the world and all the anxiety and stress when I'm swimming down a swimming pool lane. It just doesn't work out well. So it clears my mind. It keeps me busy. I teach um, a water aerobics class, which is really fun. I've done... I've taught water aerobics since I was 18. I've had a couple of breaks in life, but I mean, I've been teaching water aerobics a very long time and it's it's so much fun to get out with the older ladies and to let them work out. And I honestly, with the music going and all the things, I cannot be worried about anything in the world. So it's a great brain break for me. So I would encourage each of you that may be listening out there, what is that thing for you that gets you excited, that gets you that you can just get your mind away from work. And Jason, I know you have one of those too. So what do you do to get your mind off of work and keep your mind clear when you've got stress on your plate? 
Well, there's a number of things I do, but I still run. I'd love to get out there and, you know, run probably still 15 or 20 miles a week. And so, you know, running three miles at a time for me, I've got to admit, I'm getting a little slower as I get older, but you know, to me, I need that physical release. And so, you know, even after a day on the farm or a day sitting at my desk, it's really good for me to get out there and, and get that three miles in. And so for me, that's, that's my release, Renee. And so as, as I age, I think I might have to, I might have to pick up biking. (laughs) Um, but you know, you know, everyone has to find what works for them. Right. Because I can tell those weeks when I don't run, um, I can tell them like, Hey, I, I need to do something, you know, it's time. And so I I think it's important that, that as you think about what your thing is to also then assess what impact it has, because it does make a difference. I know for sure for me. It really does. And so today we're just talking about, so why were we talking about stepping in it now? The world has changed and all of these different things, there's there's so much need out there in the world and we can see it. And people are now starting to talk about all of the challenges that they faced during the pandemic. And if you have somebody who hasn't really talked about that, but you know, there's something that you just have to get off your chest, you know, reach out to us. We, we'd we love to hear your story. Uh, we'd love to include you in the podcast moving forward and talk about those issues that are important to you. And we're just thankful for each and every one of you that are out there listening. And we just know that, you know, you too can get back on the healthy track and it's going to take connection like we talked about today and then figuring out something that you can do to make sure that you are healthy and that your health is important because if you don't have a healthy you, you're not much good to anybody else. And so got to make sure that you take care of yourself. And that's a big piece that we learned, if nothing else, through that pandemic is ways to make sure that we all stay healthy. Jason, do you have anything to add before we close? I don't, Renee. I think it's just great having these conversations, giving people the opportunity to engage with us and to engage with us moving forward because there's some great episodes coming up um, where we're, we're going to be talking about the impact that, that we can have on rural, the impact we have on rural um, businesses and employees, and how we can impact a much larger solution. So please subscribe to us and we look forward to talking to you again. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us on our episode of the Stepping In It podcast. We hope that our discussions and insights have provided you with a deeper understanding of the Barry Rell system and the challenges it presents. Remember, we're here to help you navigate the complexities that keep your shoes clean from avoiding stepping into the crap we've encountered through our careers. If you have any questions or you want to recommend to us what products you use to keep your boots clean, we're open to that. And we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us at ruralpolicypartners.com or follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn. Stay tuned for more thought-provoking conversations, expert interviews, and practical solutions in the episodes to come. Together, we can work towards creating a more accessible and effective behavioral health system for everyone. We can do so much more by working together and talking about it. Until next time, I'm Renee Schulte, the recovering politician. And I'm Jason Hagelin, the khaki farmer. Thanks for listening to the Stepping In It podcast.